Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Mim Fox and I'm here with my lovely co-host Liz Murphy. Hello Mim and hello everyone. I hope everyone's all right out there at the moment. There's been a lot of disturbing news from America, from the United States, down the West Coast, Liz. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else then. But no, because they do have the election too. There's a lot of disturbing news about that as well. That is disturbing news. But no, yes, about the fires, because that's, of course, related to this episode. That's exactly right. So I was was really reminded of what's going on at the moment when I was listening to this story earlier that our social worker today is going to share because it's actually about the fires that we experienced earlier this year on our south coast in New South Wales um, which was really a really hard time for us in New South Wales. I know we've spoken about it on the podcast before. We have and it's coming up to nearly, well fire season's just about to start for us in October, that's when fire season starts. Yeah. And I'm also aware that one of our podcast crew was a volunteer down at the fire, I guess rescue, what what do we call it, the fire rescue? The evacuation centre. The evacuation centre. Justin. Justin Stesh, our producer. Come on into the podcast. You were there. (laughs) I was there indeed. Justin, Liz and I have so many questions for you. And so we want to ask you our questions before we listen to our social work story today, because we just want to understand a little bit more. Before we do, I just want to say to our American listeners, uh, we know it's a tough time for you. So if this is going to be a hard episode for you to listen to, um, we completely understand. We'll catch you in another fortnight. Uh, but and um, but for the for everyone else, we really have a lot of questions about what's this actually like in an evacuation centre, Justin. I know you spent some time there earlier this year. What were your experiences of being down there? Well, it was. Uh incredibly unique space. Um, Really, uh, I guess, in terms of social work practice, it was really rich. There was so much opportunity to um, to just be there with people and to support them. Um, The the centers themselves, I don't know how to describe them other than uh, semi-organized chaos. It was uh, sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of people in certain circumstances who were all gathering in from the um, the towns and the, the outlying communities all coming together to try to find a safe space from these fires that were completely unprecedented in, in Australian history, I guess, in terms of the way that they were just all encompassing up and down the east coast of Australia. Um, so in, in the centers themselves, there were you know, so many people who were coming in incredibly frightened, um, had lost their homes or were worried about losing their homes, had, um, you know, had worries for family members, for, for pets and animals, for um, their whole livelihoods. And you're bringing all of these people with all of these, um, these fears and this kind of shared trauma into one space. Uh, and then there's a lot of logistical issues, um, having the, you know, just feeding so many people, keeping keeping that kind of space sanitary and, and trying to keep, um, you know, keep any sickness from going around, that type of thing. Um, and then there were a lot of just, yeah, practical kind of everyday things, organizing people, keeping the, the space as safe as possible, um, while also trying to 
care about the the horrific and traumatic experience that each individual that you encountered was going through all in one big space. Justin, you were there. It was a multi-service approach, I believe, listening to yeah. both you and, and the social worker that we're about to listen to. So, the, it, so how did the agencies decide on who was going to do what? So in my experience, there would be a, uh, I guess, a, a state government agency that um, that was the lead agency for the evacuation center. They're the ones who have the um, the plans in place and uh, and the space kind of designated as an emergency center. More local people identified to support, and then there were uh, several other not for profits and organizations identified that would come under that banner and work um, work under the direction of that state government agency. And so it was uh, it was really well organized on that front in that there you know each each organization that was there had a specific role. One was to do food and catering. One was to do um, you know practical supplies if if people needed to needed blankets and toothbrushes and that type of thing. Um, and you know in addition to that, they would kind of support with other material needs. Um, one organization there to kind of register people and make sure that there was a, a database and an understanding of who was in the room. And that could also be used for um, helping connect family members that might have gone different directions to different evacuation centers in the chaos of leaving. So there was there was an organized um, nature to the whole thing. And it was it was run by the state government. And then lots of people came and, and so many of those people coming in were volunteers whether locally or coming in from out of town to all come together and support that community. But there was a real richness in, uh, in the way that everyone was pitching in and just being there in that space to support each other, support the community. And as you'll hear um, this, this story that we're going to hear in a little bit, the, the social worker that's talking talks about how um, she was, you know, in a, in a small way able to experience some of that because the accommodation she was staying in was just as at risk of um, of being affected by the fires uh, as you know. Then being able to expand that out to a, more than that, you know, people losing their homes and their livelihoods. I would imagine, Justin, that in that environment where uh, you're also in caught up in the trauma, and there's all this chaos with all these different services and all these different people, I would imagine at times it could be a bit difficult to then give focus to one person you're working with or hearing their story or witnessing their experience. Was that what it was like or was it actually in some way easier to do that? I think it, uh, I think I saw several of the people I was working with um, respond in different ways. Um, some people were kind of uh, finding themselves a little bit more caught up in the, in the chaos and in the, um, you know, in the, the bigger picture and needing to make sure this was organized or that was happening, which was really necessary in a lot of ways in those spaces. And then because the team was big enough, there were also people who were seeing the individuals who were really struggling, seeing the person that, um, you know, had, had more needs uh, that were coming to the surface for them and really being able to stop and focus on them. Um, in, in the moments where things were really dire and really, uh, you know, really kind of imperative that, that something be focused on that that was attended to and that was fine. But in the moments where things were a bit quieter, where there was some space to recognize the individuals, 
I got to see so many of my um, social work colleagues and then, you know, other colleagues that were there from different helping uh, backgrounds who I saw so many people just jump in and whether it was just sitting down to have a cup of coffee with somebody who, you know, one way or the other was um, was having a really terrible week. Uh, they, there was a lot of space that was made for the individuals. Um, lots of people didn't want anything, didn't really need to have those conversations, didn't need any special support, but lots of people did and there was a lot of room made for that. Justin, did you notice a difference in the type of support that social workers were offering as compared to the non-social workers that were there? Look, I may be biased, of course, but um, yeah, I, I felt like um, there were there were multiple times where I knew someone was uh, was needing an extra hand. And um, in those instances, I would, you know, kind of point those who I knew had a social work background um, towards them as as my first port of call, because uh, I, I guess we you know, I, I think that we go into it with a with a framework of understanding and of trying to be open to listening to what that person is experiencing, um, coming in with that compassionate angle. And absolutely not to say that anyone else who was there couldn't do those things, but I felt like there's the, you know, the, um, the delicate approach sometimes from a social work angle and just a little bit more training, a little bit more practical experience in uh, hearing someone, being there for them, um, supporting them and drawing things out of them that would help to respond to their needs and um, help empower them to uh, move forward with whatever it was that they needed. But yeah, again, I may be biased because that's, uh, you know, social work power. I love it. Oh, look, I think there's a very clear bias on this podcast, Justin, so I wouldn't worry too <laughs> much don't... about that. And, and we're you always know. transparent about that, that's Justin, right. so Absolutely. you know, no apologies here. <laughs> So I think that's actually a beautiful point on which to now hear the story that our social worker has shared with us. And um, before we do that, uh, the first thing I want to say is that this social worker has written her piece, and um, which is really beautiful. And, you know, Liz, I don't know about you, but I love it when social workers tell their stories in the way that is most comfortable for them. So um, I really uh, enjoyed hearing the tonality and the way that this social worker wrote her piece uh, was really, really beautiful. And um, the second thing I want to say is that uh, this story does surprise you in the fact that it goes into some detail about um, uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse, uh, psychological abuse that um, the person experienced and revealed to the social worker. So just a trigger warning for all of our listeners out there that that is a feature of this story that they will hear. Indeed. We didn't want to catch you by surprise, which it did for me, I it, must admit. It, it's a nice reveal, but when I say nice, obviously I don't mean nice in um <laughs> Yeah, no. In the difficult it, it, content no. sense. But it, it is something that we will pick up after the story because I think it was really interesting how... This, these, this information was revealed to the social workers. Absolutely. So. so let's have a listen. See you in a minute. In January this year, I had the privilege of supporting individuals and families who were impacted by the fires by volunteering at an evacuation centre. I met many individuals and families who had just lost their home or who were experiencing the fear and risk of losing their home. 
This was my first time assisting at an evacuation centre. We were in a sports community hall. It was nearby the beach, which was the evacuation point, if the evacuation centre were to become compromised by the fires. We were staying in accommodation just walking distance from the evacuation centre to assist with the ease of availability. Our team were on 12-hour shifts, switching from day to night shifts. This accommodation was surrounded by beautiful nature and trees, which made it at a high risk of catching fire. We knew what we had on us, our clothes and our phones might only return home with us. This gave me a slight understanding of what it would be like for the persons impacted by the fires to have lost or to be at risk of losing everything. Their family members, their animals, their homes and their sentimental belongings. The smoke in the air was heavy. At times we handed out and wore face masks to reduce the immediate and long-term damage the air could possibly have on our lungs and our bodies. The sky was orange and red. This added to the heightened worries and concerns everyone held for their community and their homes and also of the stress of having limited space to stay amongst hundreds of other people and also dogs, cats and birds. It was challenging to prioritise the needs of everyone who all deserved assistance and support. We needed to work together as a team to ensure the needs of children, individuals, families, the elderly and people who were sick or experiencing trauma were all met. I'll never forget the overwhelming positive sense of community from the local support to one another by sharing the limited belongings they did have, from blankets to dog food. My eyes filled with happy tears every time everyone at the centre would clap and cheer as a fire truck went by to fight the fires and to keep us safe. It was such a beautiful moment and feeling. In working together with fire and rescue, the police, health services, the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, Anglicare and some local community members, we were together able to meet the immediate needs of providing psychological first aid to people experiencing trauma, to provide the practical support of helping reconnect people to their family or community, by providing people with somewhere safe to stay and also by being able to provide resources in terms of food, material aid and connecting them to relevant services to meet their needs. It was during this sad, scary and difficult time for everyone impacted by the fires that the power of relationship-based practice was really highlighted to me. It was at the evacuation centre I met a lady named Mary, who I'll name Mary to keep her identity confidential. Mary shared with me her experience of being a victim of psychological, sexual and verbal violence and financial control by a man who was her first love and husband. To share one of the ways the violence impacted her in such a significant way, she gave the example of one day being physically paralysed from the overwhelming emotional and psychological stress she was physically and mentally experiencing from the accumulative abuse and control she was victim of. Mary and this man had two children together. It was in her daughter's teen years that Mary identified concerns in the way he was behaving around and to their daughter. It was at this point she decided to leave him to keep her daughter safe. When her daughter was 25 years of age, she shared with her mum that her father had been sexually abusing her since she was three years old. 
Mary said this was a complete shock to her. Her daughter had told her that she grew up to believe the sexual abuse she was victim of by her father was normal and that it happens in other families, and she thought her mum knew. This is another example of the impact power, control and abuse can have on both children and adults. In his adulthood, following his father's death, Mary's son shared with her that one night his father had woken him up in the middle of the night and excitedly wanted him to watch some special videos with him. He said he refused and insisted on his dad going away and letting him sleep. He also let Mary know that his father was having affairs with some people at the video store from when he was a young boy. Mary had not been aware of this. Mary said her focus was to please her husband and to cope and to survive and that this impacted her ability to see the impact the exposure of violence had on her children. Mary asked me, you just must be wondering why I didn't leave. What I was wondering was, why didn't he leave? Why did he decide to act violently towards her? Why did he promise her that he would not emotionally, physically and sexually assault her again, but he chose to abuse her again and again? Why did he decide to stay? It is a misconception and a judgment to wonder why women and men who are victims of domestic violence don't leave a relationship. That view does not understand the influence of power and control and that view does not understand the cycle of domestic violence. Domestic violence is not only violence, it is the abuse of a person's love and trust and it is a choice of behaviour. To truly understand and to effectively respond to domestic violence, we all need to stop wondering why do they stay and start asking the person who chooses to be violent, why do you decide to be violent and why do you decide to stay? I was impressed by Mary's strength in sharing some of her experiences with me and in her ongoing learning and healing in order to build her independence and strength. At the evacuation centre, Mary felt isolated and understandably fearful to return home on her own. The volunteers and I worked together in building Mary's strength to support her in returning home when the fire brigade had said it was safe to do so. And this was just like Mary had empowered herself all those years ago. More recently, Mary has told me that since the fire, she now loves social workers and that the appreciation she has for what social workers do has supported her ongoing learning and healing and also the way she is now better to able support her children and the relationship she has with them. It is positive changes like these that make me so proud to be a social worker and to be in a position where I can influence people to be happier, safe, and to live a life of choice and of freedom. Can I share with you what happened to me when I first listened to that story. Yeah, absolutely. Justin had sent that story to to us and I'm going for a run one morning and I'm thinking this is a <laughs> this is a fire story. This will be about material aid, crisis intervention, yes. service navigation. And I can remember at one point when the social worker started to talk about this woman revealing her her story or her children's story, her own story around domestic and family violence and the child sexual abuse. I was crossing the road at the time 
and I literally stopped in the middle of the road. Thank <laughs> goodness it was a pedestrian crossing and I could, oh. but it just took my breath away. Yes. And what it did for me was remind me about you can never predict what a crisis will trigger for some people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think the important point there, Liz, is that a crisis in itself changes the quality of the experience that you're then having with this person. So as the professional, like we've said, we said earlier that actually the social worker is also caught up in this trauma. They're having an experience themselves of feeling like they are in extremely close proximity to the bushfire that's happening around them. But as well as that, the quality of the crisis means that the relationship that's being developed between the social worker and the woman is that much more heightened. Definitely. It's hothoused. I yes. mean, pardon the kind of the, the bad metaphor, yeah, no, really. Um, that it's the intimacy within that relationship yes. is is rapid and heightened, but it but it also says a lot about the skill of that social worker to create that space yeah. that that woman was able to talk about what's been triggered for her and some of her own, you know, story about her children. So it does say a lot too about maybe picking up what Justin said, maybe that's where the social work skill came in. Yes, it was in, in creating the safe environment and the safe space for the disclosure to then happen. And I think, I think when we're, we're talking about relationship-based practice, I think it's actually about creating the environment and within the dynamic of you and the client so that whatever is needing to come out can come out. Not that you are expecting that there's a disclosure behind every conversation or that you're setting it up so that there could be a disclosure. It's more that the environment itself is so safe that if there is something to disclose, that person can be trusted to be vulnerable. They can trust in the vulnerability. So I'm just going to take a little, like, a divergence now. Yeah. This reminds me of conversations that I have had with social work students about, I want to become, I want to do this particular clinical intervention. Yeah. I, want to, I want to be working with complex trauma and I, and I, and I want to work in long-term relationships with clients. But what this highlights to me is that every form of intervention is a way of connecting with someone in a very special way. Absolutely. So in this case, crisis intervention, material aid, this woman is sharing information that is so deep and yes. dark and very, very intimate. But, it, but this was just, you know, in a very kind of what one would have thought a superficial interaction it was anything but. Yeah. And also it may have been the first time she disclosed that. And so, and I think that when you're um, training as a social worker and you have those desires to work in those very long-term ways with people or big therapeutic, you know, students um, will often say, I want to be a therapist, right? And so they're imagining a form of intervention which they feel like is going to be deeper somehow or more life-changing for someone somehow. But what I think this story highlights is that actually every time there is a social work intervention is the potential for the depth of that work. And so you don't know where you are meeting the person 
on their own life experience of disclosure. Yes. You don't know if this is the first time this has ever been told and now they will, because of that moment, be able to be open to being vulnerable in a longer-term relationship with a therapist or a counsellor of some form, right? Or you don't know if they've actually already done the work and now this is just a part of their history that they need to share to let you know who they are and where they come from, mm. right? And, and I think that's the thing about going into these interventions without any preconceived ideas about what your what the what the end goal may be of your intervention if the end goal of your intervention is just to bring about a disclosure then you've skipped all those steps about creating a vulnerable safe space for a person that's embedded in relationship-based practice oh look you've taken my breath away again oh <laughs> you've taken my breath away beautiful well, I, I, I do sometimes worry, Liz, about people wanting to jump to the drama of intervention and um, because I think that by doing that, we are skipping these really important steps that are about relationship building and safety. Can I, can I pull in Justin in a minute? Absolutely. Because I'm really fascinated about the shared trauma experience. Remember a few episodes ago, we yep. talked about Carol Tassoni's work and what it must have been like for those workers to have that fire. The fire was still going, right? Yes, that's so, right. And I got a sense of that from this social worker, that there was that, you know, not knowing whether you're going to get out of there with just your phone and the clothes on your back. Yes, and actually feeling the, she said she could feel the smog or there was a quality to the air that she was breathing as it was happening. Yes. Yeah. 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 Justin, can we... Ask you a few questions about what that was like. Absolutely. So, did that impact on, I guess, on the on the type of work that you were doing and your own experience of what was going on around you? How, how what was the relationship between the two? Uh, it was it was such a an interesting and and yeah, I think that the shared trauma of the experience. I'll, I'll start actually by explaining a little bit in detail from my experience. Um, I know that that story contained a little bit of, of that stuff too. And I just want to expand on it is that there was, there was one particular evening where I happened to be working where the, um, the, the phones all went out, uh, from every, every phone carrier. Um, you know, all, all of us were completely, uh, isolated communications wise, the electricity was out, the, the town was pitch black, and then it was it was about 5.30 in the afternoon, um, and it started to get really dark, and by about 6.15, and normally the, the sunset would be at about 8.30 at the time of year it was, about 6.15 or so, it, it got pitch black. So the, the town was completely, um, you know, no communications, no electricity, pitch black at, at night it felt and then the the fires were close enough that they actually created a uh, its own weather pattern so there was a thunderstorm in the midst of everything else being down and it was it was the most kind of surreal frightening um, experience and then we you know were there as part of a group of agencies to take care of um, at that point probably about 1200 people and that was that was very frightening. It was very scary. And so, um, 
you know, trying to care for other people, trying to be there in as and and be the the you know the confident and and supportive person, a group of people in the midst of something like that was um, was really interesting and unique. And so, yeah, we you know we we shared that trauma. I think we shared that um, that really delicate space. It's like the weight of responsibility is on your shoulders. Absolutely, especially for you know for some folks that were there that had limited mobilities or um, you know had kind of different health needs that they that really needed focused on and, and support um, you really wanted to make sure that you were doing everything you could do to make that experience um, the least frightening as possible. Justin in terms of how you coped whilst you were down there what what type of support were, were the workers provided with? So it was really um, in that space, you know, we, we were there to, um, you know, we, we really tried to dig in and, and do as much as we could for the community. Uh, and it, there was a level of, I guess, self-sacrifice um, in terms of maybe probably toughing it out a little bit. And not that there weren't ways that we maybe could have um, built in some more kind of shared group supervision, that type of thing. But uh, in, in that acute scenario you know there was a point where I worked a 31 hour day straight um, because there was there was literally that much um, demand there was that much to do and we were again kind of cut off um, but as as things started to um, become a little bit better the fire was less uh, kind of bearing down on the town things were getting a little bit um, yeah, less less imperative in that space. We, yeah, we did start to be able to have more conversations, more debriefs together as a team, uh, and these were ad hoc. You know, we we kind of put them together as we needed. Um, but yeah, in that space, it it really was about um, seeking out the support that you needed, just because it was such a um, all hands on deck kind of moment. Is there anything, Justin, that you wished you had been provided with? or that you would recommend to other social workers thinking about, you know, going in and working in these sorts of spaces um, in terms of their own support and their own supervision? I think that the conversations that I had with some of my colleagues after coming back and, and feedback that I gave um, back to the organization I happened to be down there with was um, to really help people Kind of understand that you are walking into uh, a, a very difficult situation that is not a uh, a spot you want to go to without being really emotionally prepared to see a difficult space to be in a difficult space and to get your hands dirty so on that i i would say um that i i kind of fed back that it was it would be helpful just for some expectation setting and for better understanding of what you're walking into. I mean, I, I don't think there are a lot of uh, a lot of social work roles that are easy, but this was by far one of the most challenging experiences I've had in my life, much less in in my career. And so, expectation setting, I think, would be one thing I would really recommend. Uh, but also, just um, maybe setting up a, a space of uh, finding a buddy. Um, you know, recommending that people have those people that they can go to that. Uh, peer support people might be identified um, in in the group of of workers and volunteers that are there that you know that, uh, that people might be able to put their hands up and say 
hey, I have um, I have some experience in in supportive counseling or just being there or I have this type of background. Uh, come talk to me if you need me, and I will seek that out from other people as well. Um, that said, anytime I saw anyone having a hard time, people were all over them. Hey, go take a break. Hey, go go sit down, have a cup of coffee by yourself, and just you know have have ten minutes and um, regroup and let's talk if you need to talk. Uh, there was a lot of those incidental moments of support. It's like, in, as, like we talked about, that the quality of the relationships between yourself and the client is heightened. I think also the quality of the relationship between the workers becomes really heightened as well because you're surviving an experience together. Absolutely, absolutely. I still have um, really good relationships that I built in those experiences because we, yeah, we do. It was such a unique experience together. Justin, thank you so much for jumping in on this episode and having this conversation with us. It's always a pleasure. And and whilst you're with us, there's something. I think that... I know what I think I know what you're asking, Liz. All right. Well, you know what I'm going to ask I'll, you. I'll, you know I, what I'm going to ask you. I do. You're so and good will, at this, Justin. I will step in. I I want to take a moment while I'm here to remind everyone listening that we have some exceptional social media channels that we would love for you to share with us. So we are on Facebook. Uh, just search for Social Work Stories Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram at SOWK Stories Pod. We're on LinkedIn now. You can always go to our website, socialworkstories.com. And if you really want to make a huge difference for us and share, uh, you know, help us share this podcast even wider, Go to iTunes, uh, go to the Apple podcast app on your phone, leave a rating, I think five-star rating for sure. I think that's only reasonable, right? Of course. Um, no, leave, leave, a, leave an honest five-star rating um, and, and write a written review, even if it's just one or two sentences, um, what you like about the podcast, uh, you know, what you think about it, what you think others should know if they're listening for the first time, discovering our podcast. It makes a huge difference for us. And frankly... Australia has, by and large, um, you know, superseded any other country, including the United States, even though we have more American listeners. So, um, you know, as as a as an American and an Australian, both for myself, I would love to see maybe a little more competition from the American side. So I know you've got a lot to focus on right now, but um, leaving a rating, a review would be really helpful. So Justin, that's my two cents. Justin, I want to say this to you. On behalf of the podcast crew, I give you five stars, my friend, for going down there and representing the podcast crew in the way that you did, the consummate professional. I want you by my well, side if I'm ever in a crisis of sorts. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like if, if, the, if they run out of wine or something, that's the kind of crisis I would prefer that's exactly to be why. Uh, there with you for, but that's a whole other story. And that's why um, we love having you on the Social Work Stories podcast, please, <laughs> Well, I equally give you both five stars, two thumbs up, whatever it is, I'm there for it. I'm very excited. I think it's time to sign out and say a big shout out to our fellow social work colleagues in America at the moment, um, doing the hard work. Uh, as if COVID isn't enough for what's going on over there, now you're in there with the bushfires. So we are standing in solidarity with you and thinking about you at this time. I just want to also jump in and say, if you're listening from America, please, please, please vote. This is so imperative. Um, 
you know, I, I think you got to get in there. You got to get your ballot in, uh, whether it's making a plan for the polls or doing absentee ba- uh, ballots. You got to get in there. I actually have mine sent off today, and it's so important. So please, please, please vote. We will definitely be speaking to our um, listeners before that election, but maybe we'll just keep on reminding them that we're thinking of them Absolutely. every episode. And a big thank you to the wonderful social worker who shared her story. And a big thank you to Felix, our social work student, and to Noni and Hamish, our journalism interns. And we will tune in in a fortnight's time. Everyone, please take care. Take care, everyone. See you later. See you later.